This is a Federal News Network podcast. The Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, part of DHS, needs to move with more speed and urgency when it comes to talent management. That's the conclusion of CISA's Cybersecurity Advisory Committee. CISA is now considering a suite of recommendations from that committee on recruiting and hiring. For more, Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. And before we get into the recommendations, who and what is this committee in the first place? Yeah, this is a new federal advisory committee that just formed uh, last December. It's advising CISA on all matters of cybersecurity from personnel, as we just mentioned, to things like how they should work with the hacking community and do communications and and, and help the nation's critical infrastructure get better at cybersecurity. It's uh, made up of several industry executives. And leading this this personnel subcommittee is actually MasterCard Chief Security Officer Ron Green. So there's several of these industry types who are on this uh, this new committee that's kind of giving CISA some advice. Well, well, MasterCard's pretty good at security, as far as I can tell. I, if somebody takes my card and goes to Florida with it, and I'm still here in Maryland, then they tend to let me know about that. Mm-hmm. All right, let's get to those workforce recommendations from the committee. What did they say? What were some of them? Well, the first thing they said CISA should do is conduct a comprehensive review of its workforce and talent needs to ensure that they're properly aligned with the agency's strategic goals and future growth. CISA has grown a lot in just four years since it became an independent agency. And the workforce subcommittee here is saying that perhaps CISA hasn't focused enough on how they can improve talent management. And so one thing they're recommending CISA do is set a goal of 90 days for a cybersecurity candidate to go from offer to onboarding. If you're saying that's not very fast, well, the current process takes about 198 days on average, according to the committee's report. And that, of course, puts the government at a huge disadvantage compared to the private sector who can make these offers and bring folks in within a matter of days So the committee also endorsed something that CISA is already doing, which is hiring a chief people officer. That person will advance this sort of unified approach to talent acquisition that the committee is advocating for. So that's one thing that CISA is doing here in the coming months. All right. So shortening the hiring process and having a chief people officer, I guess that used to be called the chief human capital officer, but human capital officer has become people. Anything else? Well, they also uh, talked about how CISA can contribute to uh, bettering the national cyber workforce, because obviously this isn't a challenge that's just limited to CISA or any other government agency. CyberSeq, uh, which is a public-private partnership, estimates that there are more than 700,000 unfilled cyber cer- cybersecurity positions nationwide, 40,000 in the public sector. So actually, the government's kind of a small chunk of that big deficit. But what the committee is recommending CISA do is focus on bettering cybersecurity education, including by supporting a virtual national cyber committee, or academy, rather. This would be akin to a digital West Point. Uh, It's where, you know, uh, attendees could participate in a CISA cadet track leading to a traditional degree, along with a commitment to work at the agency, similar to how, of course, a person would go to West Point and then have to go work uh, or serve in the Army. The panel panel is also recommending CISA work with members of the Joint Cyber Defense Collaborative. That's a public-private group to establish a cyber force pilot program where they would have industry members do tours of duty at the agency. So there's a couple different recommendations there on how CISA can, can contribute 
to the national cyber workforce. We are speaking with Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. Now, how compelling on CISA are these recommendations? What will or what must CISA do with them? Well, CISA Director Jen Easterly will take the next 90 days to review the recommendations and develop an action plan for the ones that the agency does decide to adopt. We've seen a lot of, obviously, cybersecurity workforce reports come out in recent years. This one is a little bit different because this federal advisory committee is actually attached to CISA, and there is a process where these recommendations will now have to be considered by agency leadership. You know, Easterly said that she really liked the ambition and audaciousness of some of the workforce recommendations uh, during the most recent meeting. She also talked about the cyber talent management system, which is supposed to fix a lot of these problems at CISA and make a more streamlined sort of uh, approach to managing cyber talent. It was just established last November, but it's off to a slow start. As of last month, there was a report that came out recently. DHS had hired just one individual through the program, but Easterly says things are going to pick up soon. It has had a slow start because it's a brand new way of managing people. It's an entire, entirely different system, but we're now starting to get our bearings and are starting to up the number of people we're giving offers to, so I'm very encouraged about that. And again, that's CISA Director Jen Easterly talking about the slow start that the cyber talent management system has had so far. And did Easterly or anyone at CISA have other ideas maybe the committee did not consider that they asked them to look at and review? She actually followed up on a couple of the uh, issues that the, the committee identified. One of them is the security clearance process. We described how it takes nearly 200 days to get go from offer to onboarding at CISA today, which is a crazy amount of time. A lot of that has to do with the security clearance process. And Easterly actually asked the committee to dive further into that clearance issue to work with CISA's chief security officer to identify ways to maybe make that process a little bit faster. And she says CISA is also taking a look at all of its open job positions and scrubbing them to make sure the clearance requirements aren't necessarily high. That's a big focus. She also asked them to review CISA's approach to remote work and telework policies. Uh, At CISA, nearly 2,000 positions are either remote or telework eligible, she said. That's out of 2,500 employees. She says that's a big strength for CISA when it comes to recruiting, but she indicated there might be having some effect on workplace culture, and she asked the committee to take a look. It gives a lot of flexibility, which I think is terrific. It really helps with recruiting. But as we allow for this uh, important flexibility in our workforce, I want to make sure that we are, in fact, instilling the culture that we need to be successful and that we are all embracing the values and the principles that define the culture that we're building at CISA. And that's CISA Director Jen Easterly talking about remote work policies and how it's affecting CISA's culture. She does make a good point there, though. And I was wondering about, like, political appointees that have come in during the Biden administration with all of this mass teleworking going on. How can you have a culture if you never even lay eyes on the people that work for the agency or only see them once a week? So that's a question I think we're going to hear more of. And, you know, the cybersecurity workforce has been the topic of OPM, of the White House, of other components of the Homeland Security Department, and pretty much across the government. NIST has had a cybersecurity education initiative for many, many years now. 
the NICE initiative, it's called. Are there some common threads here? Is there a way to maybe consolidate the thinking that's going on all over the government? Yeah, well, the lack of good data on the government's current roster of cyber and IT personnel and its future requirements has been a major barrier identified across the board. CIS's Cybersecurity Advisory Committee here has identified it as an issue. The National Academy of Public Administration came out with a big report earlier this year, identified data. The Cyberspace Slayerum Commission 2.0 also identified data as the major hurdle to making up ground in government on cybersecurity hiring. So the the committee in these latest recommendations is recommending CISA develop a systemic approach to collecting data on job candidate pools and hiring processes to actually monitor how they can improve things in the future. And then related to that data issue, there's the job classification system. The advisory committee says CISA should move away from the rigid, inflexible job classification system to something more flexible and adaptive and modern when it comes to cybersecurity positions. That's something that the Cyberspace Solarium Commission has also identified. The Office of Personnel Management's job classification system, kind of outdated. That NICE initiative you mentioned, they've come up with a framework that might be one of the solutions. So calling Karen Ahuja at OPM to maybe weigh in here or might even take legislation. Any other recommendations of the committee outside, say, of personnel, since it is a cybersecurity committee, ultimately, and not a personnel one? There were uh, several that that we uh, that they made in terms of fixing actually the national cyber hygiene and implementing multi-factor authentication across the board. As we know, phishing is the number one cyber attack and the number one way to prevent phishing, according to cyber experts, is multi-factor authentication. So the committee came out with some recommendations on how CISA could actually have some sort of MFA campaign nationwide to help spread the word. There's also the vulnerability and disclosure process, which has become pretty widespread in recent years. But the advisory committee said they can make it a little easier for ethical security researchers to come out, test these products and things that we use every day for vulnerabilities, not have to worry about getting arrested for doing so in the future. All right. And we are seeing, too, in the private sector, a lot of websites, services are requiring clients to have multi-factor, so it's maybe happening faster than the government in some cases. It's interesting, though, that the uh, the government's uh, zero-trust strategy that came out earlier this year, we talk a lot about zero-trust, big high-level concept, really rests on identity and using MFA, both internal to the government, but then also for accessing government services. So, you know, you have a lot of agencies who, who are providing services to citizens, and they're looking at ways to use MFA as they provide those services online. Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. Thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. And be sure to check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello, I'm WIPA CEO Shane Canfield, and thank you for joining us on another episode of Lessons in Leadership. I'm honored to be joined by Angie Bailey, founder and CEO of Ananda Life. Angie has a remarkable career in public service, beginning as a GS2 clerk typist with the Social Security Administration. And over the next 40 years, Angie steadily worked her way up through the government, ultimately becoming the Chief Human Capital Officer at the Department of Homeland Security. She's been recognized with presidential rank awards by two administrations for leadership, innovation, dedication, and commitment to the country. Angie, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Shane. What a pleasure to be here. Angie, you've made quite a name for yourself as a leader in the federal workforce. Who was the first person you remember looking up to it? as a leader, and what about them inspired you? You know, I often think about this because, you know, sometimes we think of 
the people that we look up to the most as being somebody that throughout our career has, you know, been at the highest levels and all. But, you know, I've got to go back to honestly, whenever I was 10 years old, and uh, I remember I really wanted to play Little League baseball on a boys team. I was the only girl. And interestingly, it was the women who would keep saying to me that, no, I couldn't play. And then one day, whenever I was there to sign up yet again, uh, there was this guy, his name was Delbert Beiser. And uh, I remember he had like red hair and he had wadded tobacco in his mouth and greasy overhauls and everything. And he said, you know, I'll take her, I'll take her on my team. And, you know, just looking back on that, there's so many leadership lessons and things that I just really admire about him. And actually, I thought about throughout my entire career, he took a chance on somebody he didn't know. He um, put aside whatever conscious or unconscious biases that he might have had about having a girl on a team. He treated me the same, Uh, whether, you know, if I wasn't performing, I got benched just like the boys. I got no special treatment. and, and, And he was just really honest with me and he just included me in everything. And so looking back on it, you know, really, it was Delbert Beiser, our local mechanic in our little small village that was I think my inspiration for going on to, I hope, become the leader, um, you know, that, that I wanted to be. I'd say half of the guests on this podcast have had similar stories where they reach back to either childhood or young adulthood. And I, and I think as leaders, it's really incumbent upon us to keep that in mind, that, that what we say and do especially in the younger ages, really can have a lifelong impact. How would you describe your leadership style and and how's that developed over time? I would say that the one word that describes my leadership style is that I care. Um, I guess that's more than one word, but I care. Uh, I've always cared about the mission. I've always cared about the people. I've always cared, you know, about making sure that that they had what they needed or that they were developing the way, uh, you know, that they aspired to develop. And I tried to take this approach of not treating people the way I wanted to be treated, but instead treat people the way they wanted, they want to be treated. And I think that that really kind of developed over my career. You know, I started out just like most leaders do where it's very results driven. It's all about the bottom line. You need to make sure that you get everything accomplished because, you know, that's what everybody's looking for, the goals, the metrics, et cetera. But I think as you mature and you go along, you start to, to your point, you draw back on those early childhood days or early adult young, you know, whenever you're a young adult and you say, you know, I think that there's a little bit more to this than just the bottom line. And so over time, I really began to, I, I think, see a much bigger picture and the entire ecosystem, if you will, and how the people themselves fit into all of this. And that ultimately, at the end of the day, it was all about the people. And so, I, you know, I think my, my maturity allowed me to then shift and focus more on the people than, than so much on the results and bottom line. You've been recognized with two presidential rank awards two different administrations. You founded your own company. Tell us a little bit more about your background from the beginning and and how did that lead you to where you are today? Well, 
You know, it's kind of interesting, like you said, that I started out as a GS2 Social Security Administration. I mean, what I really wanted to be was a criminal prosecuting attorney. It's, that's That was absolutely my dream. I sometimes joke and say what I really wanted to be was a mafia don, but that wasn't going to work out. So, you know, had to be a criminal prosecuting attorney. But, you know, I had to get a job to pay for college. I, you know, it wasn't in the cards that I was going to be able to go to college without a job. So I applied at the Social Security Administration, or I'm sorry, at the unemployment office, and lo and behold, I got a job at Social Security. I didn't even know it was federal, to be honest. Uh, from there, I went to the Department of Defense, and I found this, this career field called labor and employee relations. And honestly, it was as close as I was going to get to being a criminal prosecuting attorney. I didn't go on to be a, a criminal prosecuting attorney, but I went on courtesy of Department of Defense to get both my bachelor's and my master's in leadership, because the whole study of leadership, I just find incredibly fascinating. Um, you know, from hi historical to current uh, current times, I just, it's just something that's just really fascinated me. And so I just, I would say I'm a lifelong learner of leadership. And then I would say some of the other things that got me maybe where I am today is I never really said no to anything. If people asked me to take on a new challenge, even if I wasn't sure I was going to be successful at it, I would say, you know what, not sure this is going to work out, but more than happy to give it a try. And it always worked out. But I think giving things a try and just not saying no to opportunities is what really led from one position to the next. I feel like I was always rewarded for just stepping in or stepping up and taking on the challenges that sometimes no one else wanted to do. Angie, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you, Shane. It's such a pleasure. I, I really appreciate you giving me this opportunity. Thank you. This has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm CEO of WEPA, Shane Canfield. Looking forward to talking to you next time. There's no place like the beach for the holidays. In Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, you get all the charm and cheer of the season. Plus, 60 miles of nonstop fun. See holiday shows at 10 top-notch theaters. Enjoy perfect golfing weather at 90 scenic courses. Be dazzled by five holiday light displays. And get seasonal Southern Eats at over 2,000 restaurants. This will be one holiday you won't forget. Plan your winter getaway at visitmyrtlebeach.com. Helping your employees learn new cloud skills helps your business become more agile, more resilient, and more secure. Not helping employees learn new cloud skills causes your business to become less agile, less resilient, less secure, less innovative, less profitable, and, well, ultimately less of a business. Don't become less of a business. Try Pluralsight and get your employees everything they need to learn new cloud skills. Learn more at Pluralsight.com vision.